Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Ian Novak is the head warden of Baluli Game Reserve. Baluli is part of the greater uh, protected area around Kruger National Park. It's a private place. It sits off on the western boundary. And if you're not familiar with Kruger National Park, Kruger National Park is like the premier national park in South Africa. It's where everyone wants to go. You can see the Big Five, and especially in these private places, you can see the Big Five literally in two days. And one of the reasons I wanted to have Ian on is because he got sort of embroiled in this huge elephant hunt controversy out of Baluli. Really bad journalism in terms of the actual... uh, incident, what happened, why it happened, elephant management in the reserve. And Baluli and Ian spent a lot of money getting an an interdict essentially to say, hey, we have a side of the story that you're not listening to and you need to understand it and listen to it. And so I wanted to talk to Ian just in a greater context of he runs a reserve that operates both non-consumptive, i.e. photographics and consumptive, which is hunting. How do those two blend together? What is happening on the reserve? You know, where are the needs? Where does he see things going? Does he have an elephant population problem or not? And, you know, how does elephant hunting really, at the end of the day, benefit conservation or community upliftment or even the security of the property itself? It's a fascinating conversation. I think you're going to love it. If you do love it, please don't forget just hit the five-star review button on Spotify, on Apple, leave us a review. All of this really helps us trend up the charts, and we really need your help to do that. Please, I cannot emphasize it enough. Give us a review. Give us a rating. Love you guys. Enjoy this podcast. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple, is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just 
killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Friday afternoon, not it's not like slow down work for you on a Friday afternoon. It's like, hey, Robbie, we gotta, I gotta go. Like, I got, I got stuff to do this afternoon. It's not like I gotta go and have a sundown on a copy outside of that's, Kruger. Uh, that's normally the plan, but you know the animals don't have too much respect for our diaries, so they do what they need to do when they want to do it. And I can always predict, you know, Friday afternoon, Sunday mornings, um, normally the time they decide to do things. So yeah, it's just nature of the beast, eh? So Ian, just for uh, by the way, I, I do a terrible job of introducing people. So Ian Nowak, Nowak, Novak. What? How do you say your Novak, name, last yeah. name? How you say the W like a V, Novak? Yeah, Novak. Um, head game warden of Baluli Game Reserve in South Africa. A lot of people are going to be listening to this, going, "Where the hell is?" Well, hopefully they don't know where the hell is South Africa, uh, but you never know. Um, yeah. Introduce yourself. Well, number one, firstly, thank you for coming on, and and I'm so I'm so glad that a mutual friend connected us, and just from our initial conversation, I knew that we were kindred spirits in terms of what we do and and what we're passionate for. Um, yeah. But just give everyone an in, an introduction to who you are, and then maybe like set the scene of where is Baluli, what is Baluli, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, Nabzia Novak, and I'm the head warden and general manager. Luli Nature Reserve, which is part of the Greater Kruger Open System. So if you look on the western boundary of Kruger National Park, there's substantial land mass that sits in private land, and some of it's also community land that uh, is open to the Kruger Park. So we, Baluli's quite far west. Um, our immediate neighbor is the Kasseri Nature Reserve. And um, then Kruger's adjacent to Kasseri, but it's all one big system. So we're the R40, that main road that runs between Hootsbreit and Palabora is, is our boundary, and that's pretty much the furthest western boundary. Is that boundary. your eastern boundary or your western boundary? Our western boundary. So, um, so we are by far the, that is the western boundary then of the entire open system. And uh, our reserve, oh, man, is it killing my dog? There's monkeys. Um yeah, you got Jack day. Russells. What kind of dogs do you have? We've got three wiener dogs. Oh, that's right. You've got wiener dogs. We yeah. have the kindred spirit of little yappy dogs. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, them and the monkeys torment each other all day. Um, anyway, so, yeah, Baluli is a 50,000, just over 50,000 hectares um, of reserve. That's, again, our, our immediate neighbor is Kasseri, but then... On our, we have the uh, about 40 kilometers of the Willifans River that runs through the reserve, and that sort of cuts the reserve. There's one third, say, north of the river, and two thirds south of the river. So it's quite a, a variety of vegetation uh, types. The topography is very varied. Um, beautiful place, but lots of 
different um, vegetation types. So obviously, carrying capacity and densities of animals is different in different areas. Um, and we also we're part of the Black Rhino Range Expansion Program. So we we've got a besides the normal Big Five, we've also got a substantial outside of Kruger. We've got the biggest wild um, Black Rhino population. So uh, mm -hmm. in South Africa. So yeah. Um, so that's pretty much us. Yeah, as the as as the sort of when you say they took the fences down on Pruger, um, explain that to people. Kruger National Park obviously is like the the premier national park of South Africa. You've got these private reserves, Baluli being one of them, that's sitting on the west. Why would Pruger say we want to take the fences down between the this national park and then people who own private land? Well, you know, I think decisions like these, fortunately in South Africa, leading the way conservation comes first. And, um, you know, the natural migratory routes of the animals are north to south, east to west, depending on the species type. So you've got two big five areas adjacent to one another and um, the animals want to move. And it's people problems that stop it moving. So we're quite unique in the sense that we've got a, a, a cooperative agreement with national parks. And I think if I'm not mistaken, it's the only one in the world where national parks and private parks have um, a cooperation agreement in place where we agree on, on um, management stru style structures, uh, conservation issues. Uh, we were run it as a collective. So nobody interferes with the day-to-day -day running of your individual reserve, but on the big issues, we work together. And there's a structure that's been created from this agreement that allows for um, sharing of information, joint decision-making for the greater conservation good. So they don't scratch in my salad, I don't scratch in theirs, but as far as conservation issues are concerned, we work together for the benefit of conservation. And in the end, that benefit, what we're here for is the ecosystem. And then in turn, all of our ecotourism businesses based on that get to the benefit of running it. You know, running things in a silo is just not productive. And once you accept it's a big system and you're part of a big system, be a happy player in that big system and bring your part and everybody works together and it's fantastic. So it works really well. Ian, as the head warden of Baluli, what is your day-to-day -day job? Like people are like, man, this seems like the most romantic job in the world. You're like this huge head warden. Well, you know, you're dressed in camo right now. You've got epaulets on. You've got your big, you know, army surname on your on your right on your left breast what do you uh, do um you know i think it's out of all the things it's probably one of the most varied jobs um the range of things i do in a day i think is quite surprising because yeah the romantic stuff is there sure we get to ride around in helicopters and work with animals and do these things but at the same time there's a lot that goes on into running a reserve like this um the security aspect of late the last 10 years has been a huge priority and we've had to militarize you know and and get things for the sake of the rhino and for everything else that's that we need to protect um it's a big operation uh lots of boots on the ground lots of many working parts and then also there's quite a quite a large administrative side that goes to it because it links all into legislative requirements you know so we we have various layers of leg legislation that are applicable to us um, being, you know, Biodiversity Act, 
um, Environmental Management Act, uh, Protected Areas Act, and all these things. Um, so you need to basically be compliant with all these things and then compliant with the agreement to trigger. So I manage all of that. Um, and then the reserve itself. But but we don't, luckily, uh, I don't get involved in the the tourism end of things. We've got lodges and they deal with that. And then, you know, we've got various income streams and they deal with the end users. I deal with the reserve staff, which is the researchers, the uh, the security guys, um, and that kind of thing. So I have very little interaction with the general public. Um, so and let you know. So a lot of times people ask me, "Oh, I know so and so works at X lot. Yeah, I know him." And it, and I always say that you must you must hope that the answer is no, because if I do know him, it means he's done something wrong. Otherwise, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, obviously, and and uh, so there's various pillars. You know that 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 form part of the job, so it's quite varied, and um, and then obviously the main conservation side is is the thing which uh, we all got into this for. Um, the role has evolved substantially with the the threat on rhinos and our other wildlife. So um, it's a combination. There's a like some military aspects to it. There's conservation aspects to it. There's business side to it. There's contractual side. So it's quite varied. Which is why the GM part comes in, because I think in normal business terms, people would understand it better as the general manager. And then right, right. On, on the reserve side, the head warden is specific to running the core functions of the reserve. So the the reserve Baluli just um, is made up of multiple landowners, right, Ian? Correct. And they all work together. They all have their own little private place. Some have decided to create big lodges that people can go on ecotourism drives. Or how does it? How does Baluli work a little bit more? Well, what, what essentially what Baluli is, or it boils right down to yes, it's a collection of many many landowners that have put their land together to create this reserve. But in terms of our um, our reserve, is it's basically a federal. It's a federal system where we have um, 10 areas that, that function as individual reserves with their own uh, their own sort of um, concept. Like some will be a shared block, some will be private yeah. land. We've got a community, and those are individual reserves. But in the Federation, they all form part of Paduli, and we sit on top. And in order to be part of the open system, these landowners, through their region, have now um, become part of Baluli, which is the signatory and the representative body in the open system. So, I'll, so we've got ten regions that make up Baluli, and like I say, some are just individual private landowners, some are shared blocks, uh, some is a community land. We've got eight and a half thousand hectares of land that's owned by the Masegi community, and um, and and we so we set policies at the top each area has got a warden that looks after that area who reports to me in terms of federal structure so but ultimately it's a collection of either direct landowners or shareholders in property companies that own land um so it's a lot i think it's over 400 you know almost almost 500 invested parties um in the reserve and ian would you say i know it's difficult to to boil this down to be overly simplistic, uh, but I want you to try. Would you say the overall goal of all these landowners, your job, all the waters underneath you, is 
conservation sustainability uh, that that to me is almost like just the most general term that I can come up with yeah you know, I would I would say that that sums it up well um I like to say that I think our main our main function here is we're custodians of the biodiversity and um and that's why we're all part of this federation so that we can all <clears throat> manage our blocks of land in accordance with the conservation goals of the greatest and preserve the ecosystem as well as the biodiversity as best possible. You know, this is this is the mecca when it comes to hey. <laughs> so um I began to edit that out. Quite annoying. Um, <laughs> um yeah, so it's 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 you know the I think the, the Greater Kruger area, second to Cape Town, um, is the reason people come to South Africa. And uh, it's because of the uniqueness of the area, the biodiversity. It's one of the few vast wild landscapes left. And uh, I think every person who's fortunate enough to own property uh, wants to contribute in their way to preserving it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've set the scene now. Everyone yes. knows you. We know Baluli. Uh so earlier this year, the reason we got in contact with one another is Baluli, you know, you hate to see it. It happens all the time, but it also gives you an opportunity to, to tell your story a little bit. But Baluli was in the news um, through some of our friends, journalist friends in, in South Africa. Yeah, um, and so let me start before we go into the news and what happened. Uh, one of the things that you said was across the greater Kruger system, everyone agrees on management structures. Great. Now, from a wildlife perspective, management can, you know, really happens through either a non-consumptive form or a consumptive form. Is everybody, Ian, is everyone on the same page when it comes to fully utilizing the toolbox when it comes to wildlife management or do some people say we are only non-consumptive we are only consumptive or yeah what's the situation there look it's 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 not it's not prescriptive um each reserve can can obviously like what they're going to participate in and what not um for me I, I i i don't and i always argue that that distinction because all utilization is consumptive some just consume some resources and others consumes others. And um, so whether you engage in animal offtakes or not, um, you're still consuming water a lot, especially in the tourism side. It's ridiculous the amount of water. You've got a massive carbon footprint. Um, you've got no wilderness areas left. You've got two game drives a day, sometimes two vehicles per game drive per day, housed by 50, 60 lodges. Um, it's 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 consumption traffic um, yeah yeah it's an impact it's for me it's about impact but some of the reserves do and some some don't the key thing though is that that any animal offtake is part of the cooperative agreement and if you're a signatory to it um whether you do it yourself or not is you fully aware of, of what happens and in support of those reserves who do do it um but you know, I think there's for me the big distinction is we also need to we need to say commercial and non-commercial because um, because there's this term that's been labelled now that creates a lot of negativity, which is the term trophy hunting, right? And uh, and that's not what happens here. We have category hunting, 
and our categories, we can go more to later, but the categories of animals that we shoot are, are designed to be sustainable and to remove inferior genetics out of the system, especially in overpopulated species. But, and the trophy has the connotation, it's the best of the best and the biggest of the biggest. And that's not right. what happens in this system. So it gets painted black, you know, like, like a, in a bad way because it's trophy hunting. That's not, as it's consumptive, yes. And uh, some reserves will, will take an impala quote and shoot it for rations, but they won't participate in trophy hunting. Now, my thing is always ask the impala if it's a difference to heavy. If someone's yeah, there's no <laughs> shot or the ranger's shooting him, you know, I think it's, uh, so, so yes, you know, it's, it's a play on words, but basically that um, sustainable resource use is across the board in the system to varying degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is the, um, does Baluli from a consumptive use perspective, from a hunting perspective, the revenue that is generated in Baluli, is it substantial? Is it something that's like, if it got taken away tomorrow, would it have an impact on Baluli? It wouldn't. On Baluli as a whole, uh, it would be less because we ourselves um, in Baluli have some of our regions which elect to, to participate in hunting and some don't. They will just take a, a rations quote or something. So even within our landscape, it's, we will, again, don't push things down. But I think economically, we would, we would be able to make a plan. The problem you have if it stops is your you are then eliminating the last of our wilderness areas, true wilderness areas, because those are the areas where the only income they can make uh, is through hunting. And the, the, the upside for us is that there's no lodges on those property. Um, there's, there's very little infrastructure and, and it's conducive to hunting. But as soon as you take away that, what does the landowner do? Because I hold everyone to a certain minimum standard when it comes to security. And uh, we've, got, we've got the best record for the last four years in the open system for rhino protection. And that doesn't come cheap. And Yeah. What do you mean? What do the, you, like when you say it doesn't come cheap, give us an idea. How much are you spending a month? Well, I can tell you that uh, our bill last year for this, well, just for the security on this um, on this reserve was uh, almost 15 million rent. Um, and that's expense. We're not talking about capital. Um, you know, we're, we're going in terms of um, technologies and all these things, um, talking about pure running costs. It's between 12 and 15 a year. And that the landowner paid. Plus, he has to keep, still maintain anti-erosion, alien plant control, all these things uh, to be compliant. and you take away the one income stream that he's got. The, what will, the negative effect for us is we'll recover financially, but that, those, those blocks of wilderness, the landowner will have no choice but to develop a lodge. And, and how impact, many other lodges would he be? Let's just, just use, again, Baluli as an example. How many lodges exist on Baluli right now? It's not like there's one, right? No, there's in excess of 40. So it's, there's competition uh, for the ecotourism component, the non-consumptive well, sure. in Baluli specifically, but multiply yes, yeah, that the, by how many Balulis do we have around Kruger? Yeah, no, it's, it's endless. And you know, it's a, it's, 
it's one of those things where it becomes the capital investment to get a lodge going. These days, the standard has gone to such an extent where you are talking massive investment just to get something that is uh, viable. And mm. then you've got to get the brand name going. It's, it's huge amounts of money. But for us as a reserve, as conservationists, is you are losing wilderness. And that is the thing that people fail to understand is that lodges have the high ground at the moment because they, you know, nothing does. Um, so that's all good. But the point is that the amount of water that is consumed, the, car the carbon footprint, the infrastructure that needs to be put in place, the work on the roads that needs to take place, um, the burrow pits to sustain these roads because, you know, the GNTs can't shake too much um, on game drives and, and all these things. And uh, you multiply that out and, you, and you, you put that into the wilderness area and that's the biggest loss is true wilderness areas. And some areas are also not conducive to photographic tourism. It's thick Mopani felt. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so so for that, now you want to compete. It's not just building a facility that's of a particular standard. Is if you're going to charge X or not to make it viable, um, and you can't show the guys big five consistently next to the vehicle or lying here or there, there is no one's going to come to your lot. Whereas from a hunting point of view, you can keep that wilderness and you're on foot, you're doing what you need to do, you'll find what you need to find and, and we keep the wilderness and the client leaves happy. Um, so, you know, this tourism thing cannot just be rolled out on any property just because it's part of the system. Some are conducive to it and some are not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as, a, as, as in your position as the GM slash head warden of Baluli, obviously animal populations are one of the, the things that you constantly are looking at. And being an open system with Kruger, one of the ideas there is that you've got free migration back and forth. Um, is, how critical is population management? Do you have set goals like to say, okay, Robbie, elephants, let's just use elephants as an example. How many elephants do you have? How many elephants do you think you should have on Baluli? Well, you know, it's, I'm glad you raised elephant because that, you know, considering what's just happened, um, it's all around elephants. And I think people need to really put this into to context. Is I'll just give you, without getting too scientific, just a couple of numbers. Is You know, we did a proper felt assessment here in the early days when Baluli was starting. And top ecologists, guys who know what they're doing, looked at it, at our vegetation types, averaged it out across the reserve and said, you know, your ideal carrying capacity in this environment is between 30 and 50,000 kilograms per thousand hectares. And obviously that would then be made up across your various species. So as a thumb, just as a round number, if you extrapolate that to what the elephant population should be, Baluli should have maximum around 250 elephants to maintain the biodiversity of all the other things, you know, because that's the thing, is we need to maintain biodiversity, not biomass. And um, currently, at our last count, which was just done now in September, we're up to 1,581 elephants. Wow. And for the last seven years, we've had a, between a 22 and 25% increase every year of, of elephants. So we're six and a half times what we should. And it's a complete oversupply, but it's not just because Baluli's um, 
you know, this amazing place for elephant, which we are, but the entire system, um, the whole greater Kruger system is totally overpopulated with elephants. They just happen to be spending more and more time in Belulit. And, um, and you have a situation where, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's the devastation that's being caused. Um, as soon as one thing's out of whack, um, it has a knock-on effect for other, for other species. And we are now seeing an, uh, a really in disproportionate amount of damage happening to the vegetation. And it's having an effect now on your kudus, your nyalas, your bushbuck, uh, your riverine species. And, um, and, you know, it's a big, big problem. So when it comes to elephant, is we're completely overstocked with elephants, and it's not going to change anytime soon because the greater population is just growing and growing. Because in '94, the the Kruger stopped culling and committed to trying alternative methods. Mm-hmm. And I think we can safely say in 2024 that the alternatives haven't worked. They haven't curbed the calving rate, and we're now sitting at a situation where we're six times over the gang capacity what we should have. And I think we're failing miserably as conservation people for allowing this to happen because there's no voice for the bushbuck and the kudus and all that. But, you know, elephants have got a voice because they, they get click donate animals. Yeah, yep. so, 100%. So, yeah, so how do you as a warden problem. handle that? Like, do you have a quota? Do you get given a quota by sand parks? Do you like say, hey, guys, I need to, I need to do something myself. Obviously, you can't, they're not going to issue you a thousand elephants um, if you're way over. How do you, how can you as a warden handle things like that, Ian? Look, what, what we do is we, every year we do our, um, our game counts at the same time every year. So doing it for 30 years, so we've got quite a reliable um, data set. You can see the trends and what we do is as the APNR, which just to say the APNR is the Associated Private Nature Reserve. So that's us, Timbavati, Kaseri, Umbabat, and Thornybush. Um, we, we've been an entity for many, many years operating as the APNR. And we've got an ecological panel and they put together all the data, look at can capacities and then come up with a recommended offtake. And we will then submit that to the authorities and it gets approved, then that's then that's our our quota that we use. But you know, it's important there that the quota is not a blanket X amount of elephants. It's very specific as to what categories, um, the quantity per category, and that ranges across all all species. And then we have an allocation that would be for rations and so on, which is what you would call non-selective. And then for the commercial side, there would be very defined categories. And I think if I can spend a minute on that, I think it's really important that um, I mentioned it in my internal documents, that the one that went all over the world. And I think people um, really need to say, because I see all the, the, the journalists you talk of that discredited that, um, say, you know, I'm not, I'm, it's, there's no scientific basis for what I'm saying. And, and I always argue the point is to say it's completely scientific um, because we've been doing it for over many years because there was a curve 
a graph that's been generated. And over 600 elephant bulls were sampled across the age ranges to get what we call the average tusk weight. And it works in ages. It's very, the age is critical. So you then got a curve like this. And all the animals that are taken off have to, in terms of the category that you, that you hunt and that you offer to the market, have to fall below the average curve. So anything that's average or above is, is not huntable. And we too don't want to, to hunt it. And, um, and so why you don't have... you want to hunt it? That's a very key question. Why don't you want to hunt it, Ian? Um, because, you know, you cannot deny that um, human beings are responsible for the fact that there's so few tuskers left. And that was the legacy of the past where there was indiscriminate hunting for, for profit and all the big animals were shot for, for vanity and so on. That's absolutely undisputed. So my question is, how do, who's going to fix it? The elephants themselves or because people created the problem, people are the only ones who can help fix the problem. And that's the reason why we won't... Um, shoot anything that's average or better than average because they need to be able to procreate and bring the average tusk size back up. But by eliminating uh, below average animals on a very small scale, but still, everyone that's taken off gives one with better genetics a chance to, to procreate. Now, when they say that it's, it's bad science, I'd like to know what's the good science because here's the fact is the fact is if you're a 55-year-old tusker and a 40-year-old elephant with tusks like this comes and fights you, you're going to lose the fight because tusks help you nothing in a fight. But a 40-year-old bull is going to smash that old guy from pillar to post and who's going to breed? Not the tusker. And so how do you, how do you if, if, it's, if it's a need to repair the damage that people have done, how do we, how do, we do that? Just leave it. Mm -hmm. Well, if you just leave it, all you're doing is allowing inferior genetics more opportunity to create more inferior genetics. And uh, although we don't take off that many, I still believe if you have to look across the reserves that do apply our our, our system, that in 20 years, I think the average tusk size will be bigger. Than how many, how many elephants are being taken in the, con in the conglomerate of reserves from an elephant perspective? Um... Probably only about in our in our sections there are probably only about forty forty five. That's just Baluli, right? No, no, no. That's that's oh, the uh, whole the whole kid and kaboom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we 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 would we would max out at around twenty. Mm hmm. And it makes sense. The, the reason I ask you the question because in my brain, here's the other thing, right? A lot of people are like, "Well, wow, wow, you can't." You know, ecotourism and hunting, non-consumptive or consumptive, you guys are completely on opposite pages when it comes to conservation and there's no way that you guys can work together. And it's like, well, this is actually what you're describing is exactly the perfect example of harmony in that, yes, I, I get the genetic argument. I could actually argue a little bit less for the genetic argument given the, given the science that shows the amount of ivory that's put on between 40 and 55 from an elephant perspective. But from an ecotourism perspective, it makes sense to keep the big boys around because that's what they want to see. Yeah, and, and you know, um, the other thing is that, that the other animals that, that aren't 
uh, one of those iconic species that, that elicit automatic support and funding for is that's our job is to, you know, when I look at our kudu population and I'm, and our giraffe population, and I see what's happening to them, combination of obviously predation, but the landscape is being so re-engineered that they are getting more and more confined to certain areas where the elephants have not yet destructed. But let me give you a little statistic um, just so people can, can see what I'm talking about. Is because of this overpopulation that we have, is we did a very, very extensive tree study earlier this year. And we took 10 species of trees and the 10 we chose were some were iconic trees. Obviously, they've got um, cultural and historical value. And then the others were trees that are critical in the browsing uh, food chain. And we did say so we've got 2,800 data points across the reserve. And the bottom line is, is that on average, 65% um, of our trees above three meters are gone. Not wow. going to be gone, gone. And if you take the curve, that's you look at the population we've got now and the vegetation that's left, and look where that um, we're talking short term, big problem here. You know, over the last four years, <clears throat> our raptor nests that we find not along the river run, the river run is, is somewhat protected because your big jackalberries, sycamore figs, etc., can't be pushed over. Um, they're too well established, but there's very little recruitment of new ones. But but along the river rounds, you still find vulture and raptor nests um, in decent quantities, notwithstanding poisonings recently. But our raptor nests are 90% gone in the last four years. And that's in the, the reserve property because the marillas are gone. All the, the big trees, the nesting are gone. And um, who's, who's fighting for those? Who's mm. fighting for those, Adam? You know, um, mm -hmm. and that's unfortunately our job is, is we need to, we need to look after everything. But when it comes to, to the elephant offtake, um, you know, there's a protocol besides the categories that I've explained, um, there's also a self-imposed protocol, which we've put into place. There's no legislation that requires that protocol. We've got it as an agreement amongst ourselves in the cooperative agreement, um, that covers not only ethics and humane and all these sorts of things. It covers the categories, everything. And, and, and there's huge penalties involved if, if you, um, you know, go against the protocol, you break any of those clauses, there's massive penalties. Now, like what, what would be a penalty Ian? a massive fine, for example, or, um, normally it's a big fine. If it's, uh, that's normally hit where it hits hard, where it hurts. Right, and right, that, right. That, generates more money for, for conservation. <clears throat> the other thing is with the money generated from hunting, uh, we are, we are bound to buy an agreement to spend it on conservation, security, and, uh, community upliftment. So and all the money that comes from consumptive use yes. is bound to be used for conservation, community work. And security, etc., and security. So, so that just goes. So let's go back to the landowner we spoke about earlier <clears throat> with wilderness. Okay, he's he's using keeping his land wilderness. He's generating this income from hunting purely so that he can spend it on those three things. He's not putting anything in his back pocket. 
Whereas, so the, the, the non-consumptive users do not have the same parameters by no. which they need to spend the money? No. And, and, and what I'm saying is if you, if you look at, at where's the, what's the best for, for conservation, of course, there's a bit of a gate fee that, that the guys pay when they're coming for a, for a lodge stay. But the lodge is not obliged to, um, to spend its money on those three things because it's morally acceptable. Um, and what I'm saying is that, well, for us as a reserve, is the same animals are being viewed, the same roads are being used, the infrastructure, everything, and the gate fee in no way comes close to what the hunting generates for revenue that we can directly spend on conservation, security, and community upliftment. So one thing you can say about the consumptive side of it is that every rand that's generated is put back into the system. There's no profiteering happening. That's not happening on the, on the tourism side. It's not. Mm -hmm. They have to pay some security, though. Like they, Those landowners are paying you to keep up with yeah, security yeah, are, and stuff like they that. Are, They're just not mandated to within a boundary of these yes. three things. So, so what I'm saying is that they are, they are covering their, their costs. And whatever's in excess of that, they can keep. Mm -hmm. That can't mm -hmm. happen with consumption. Um, so, so the whole idea, this you know, this whole conversation came from a point of you had an elephant hunt. Obviously, we've we've been talking a little bit now that you guys do hunt. There is a consumptive side of things. There's even there's also a management side of things, right? For rations, yeah. like we've just mentioned, yeah, sure. that you know the guys that are coming in for the fancy two-night stay, three-night stay to Baluli, having an Impala steak that Impala came from being shot exactly. off the landscape. It didn't just get, you know, yeah, yeah. peacefully died didn't and run into the kitchen, um, And so you guys got put onto the news headlines um, a little unfairly, which is the whole point of the controversy. Yeah. You had an elephant hunt in Baluli. It was actually on Maseke, uh, Maseka, and... Um, just wasn't you weren't given the opportunity to speak yeah well that's normally that's normally the case with these issues that i'm sure you're aware is that um you know this is these headlines are great clickbait and um and there's there's a lot of horror and whatever that is perpetuated and it obviously sells things but nobody just said is that they're not really interested in in balance, and then we, we we eventually got the right to reply because we fought for our rights as far as that's concerned. It cost us a lot of money um, in legal fees to get it, and I just that's why when you started off with the word journalist, I, I find it really sad that when it comes to these issues, there's no journalism happening. Where it's, this is what we've been told. What's your side? Um, and then present the reader with both sides and let them make up their minds. And those that are opposed to it can be opposed. We're not trying to change people's minds about hunting is everyone can decide the hunting for us as a reserve is we have an oversupply of animals and we have communities on the there's four million people on the outside of the greater kruger system with a 60 percent unemployment and wow. we have and we have a bushmeat poaching uh crisis because people are starving and we've got um protein running around here um that is in excess. Now, if it comes about goodwill, is that how do you, where does it start? So if people have a need and we've got a supply, is that how do you buy goodwill with these communities? Well, it's right there. Um, is 
you the, with a with a hunter from overseas, you can't do anything with the meat. So it's a win-win. Is that the animal gets removed off the landscape? It's got inferior genetics. You take it out the system. The overseas client is happy, and the meat you've got four tons of it goes to the local community, and there's goodwill and there's a feeding scheme in place. Um, what's what's the problem with that? Oh, an mm. elephant is dying. That's the mm -hmm. problem. And it's being shot by some wealthy guy. Well, good, because it's better than it being caught with a snare and um, and rotting and nobody gets to the benefit of it. Um, so controlled offtakes is absolutely um, a, a tool at our disposal. At, and in the scheme of things, hunting revenue covers 11% of our budget. So to get back to you, your original question is, would we survive if it goes away? Well, of course we would. I just think it would be a massive mistake because we would be wiping out wilderness and we would be cutting off a supply, a, a, a community benefit that is much needed. And I would challenge people, especially abroad, um, to come and try and explain to our local communities. Most of the people have never been here. Come and explain to them why you can't eat an animal that there's an oversupply. Please come and try. Um, you know, it's it's a in Jeez, Africa. It's such a tough thing, man. Imagine you like it's right there. Why can't I have it? You've got way more than you need. Exactly, and it was always historically. Um, humans everywhere in the world, but especially in Africa, like in, have utilized the animals. Um, it's just been in a symbiotic balance um, and you never take more than you need and so on and so forth. But here we've got a situation where we've got an oversupply of something. We've got people that are starving on the outside and um, you've got overseas people saying, well, um, it's, it's inhumane and it's, what's inhumane about it? Is is it better to leave them so that they get to old age, they get the tusk in the, the ribs from another bull and go and suffer to death and die over four days and then they just feed the vultures? Because that happens all the time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so the, the, the thing we've got is that people are shooting the elephant and that's where the argument begins and ends. But no one's interested in looking at both sides of the fact. The fact that we've got a complete oversupply it's a resource that can be utilized and all that money that's generated has to go back into conservation so that animal is dying for the sake of the other animal across all the species. So what is the, in what other scenario does that happen? Yeah, it's a tough scenario in that a lot of people will say, well, you know, I have no problem you feeding communities. My problem is someone paying for the right to shoot that elephant as you just described. And in my brain, and I know you probably are exactly on the same page as me, is like, well, Ian can go shoot it. Ian could shoot it for the community and give the meat. But then what? He just lost money for conservation, money for community, and money for security. So, And, and yes, it's only 11%, but where's that 11% going to come from? And there are You're consequences it. to removing it, right, as you mentioned the remaining, the last remaining wilderness to be converted yeah. to another ecotourism lodge to lose more biodiversity to, for, for, for at the end goal, for what? To yeah. just stop a rich guy who's paying money from pulling the trigger. 
and that's <clears throat> and that to me is such a waste if if I go and do it because I'm not going to put that amount of money into conservation coffers and you it just doesn't make any sense is it's done in a controlled environment um the reserve people are with to make sure the correct animal is selected in terms of category in terms of all of these things um exactly what would happen is if, if I had to go and do it the difference is that there's a huge loss of income for conservation expense and security and you know the argument always gets gets brought up that um you know because the animals are in an open system that it belongs to the general public but i don't notice the general public's helping us with any of our security invoices or any of our costs mm -hmm. then Good point. when it's time to pay we pay alone but when it's time to to hunt we need everybody's um approval and we are managing the animals when they're on our land um and whatever comes off that goes directly into the protection of the other ones and and like I said, the fact is nobody talks about um as much as we've had articles published about it never never had a discussion about the fact that how did we get to be number one in terms of rhino protection in the open system man, but we hunted an elephant and then I make worldwide headlines and mm -hmm. it's just a disproportionate thing here, but that elephant that money goes straight into. There, the proof of the pudding is there, is that we've been number one for the last four years in a row. It's not because of hunting, it's just hunting is one of the things that contributes to it. And mm -hmm. um, and the community, the Maseki community, that is 252 kids that get fed from that elephant meat. And last year when the interdict came, all of a sudden it just stopped overnight. And HSI and all these people think it's a huge victory um, for the elephant. The, it's not. Is um, the the overpopulation still exists? But what was a huge loss was for that community. We're talking about at least forty tons. Forty tons of protein were taken out of a community that has sixty percent unemployment mouse because someone overseas has a problem with somebody shooting an elephant. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, let me uh, before I let you go, I'll ask a, a sort of step back question. Me. How long have you been working in Baluli, Greater Kruger? Um, in this particular role, six years. In in the time that you spent there, obviously you've interacted with a lot of people that have spent a lot more time there. I'm curious to get your thoughts to the elephant narrative today and say let's project 10 years forward. Where are we, in? Are we, what's coming? Um, you know, you got to, there's two sides to this point. There's, there's, you know, these days, unfortunately, it's got to a point where when you talk to science, you've got to see who's funding the research um, to see what, what is the background to that. Um, so we've got a big problem here is that we've got an entire industry that is run off generating money to save the elephant and um, they do play a lot on people's ignorance because one of the stats for example that they love to put up is Africa's elephant population over the last 10 years has done this um, yeah and uh, last time I looked Africa's pretty big and um, you know the fact that 
north of the equator, there's a problem with elephant. Doesn't mean that south of the equator must be totally overpopulated. It doesn't compensate one for the other. So you have to look at populations in isolation. Botswana and South Africa, in the areas that can have elephant, are totally, totally overstocked. And and the bottom line is, is there's an argument that said carrying capacity is not really a thing anymore. Well, I just fly over this reserve during the game count and I can see that the destruction that's happening is way out of whack. What it should be. Because let's be clear, elephants have a clear, this defined role in the ecosystem and they are supposed to be ecosystem engineers. That's their job. Um, it's just the frequency and the quantity is important. And when there's too much of that, it ends up being, instead of a bush clearing exercise, becomes devastation. So it's a fine balance. So there's a simple thing. is Either the numbers need to be controlled or there needs to be more land added. Those are the only two options. In a Let's add more line. land, Ian. Let's add more land. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that would be ideal. The thing is that, um, again, what is the... Let's 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 look at that particular scenario. Is we look at an area on the map and say, okay, we want to bring it in. What is <clears throat> what is the biggest prohibitor to that? Is what's the what's the carrot for those people to bring their land in? Um, what is what is the carrot? Do they, you know, they've got a particular land use it's making them a certain income? How does just by joining the system doesn't mean that automatically they're going to compete with? It. Because now they've also got to build lodges and do all sorts of things and wait for the, the area to be populated. So as far as the elephant goes, where are we going? If you talk to some, they say it's absolutely no problem and it will sort itself out. And I'll say those are very much linked to uh, funding and NGOs with Save the Elephant type thing. And then you speak to guys on the ground and people that have been here for very long. And, and although I haven't been, I've only been here six years, I've been in the bush since 2003. And I know... It's quite a simple thing. Is if you've got a fenced off reserve and you're, you're, you've got no elephant and you want to put in elephant. Okay, so what they do as a guard is they, they work on one per thousand hectares. If it's, say, mixed felt. If it's yeah. really pristine and ideal, ideal felt with unbelievable tank capacity, you can work on two per thousand hectares. So on, that form, so on that formula, um, we should have a hundred elephants. Jeez. Um, so at fifteen hundred and eighty-one, uh, yeah, we have a ten times the problem. So, so the only thing is control the numbers or add land. And where is it going to go? Um, I don't know. Unfortunately, there's too many role players involved in decision making that have no real skin in the game. They've got funding, they've got NGO funding, they've got all this, but they've got no skin in the game. And those of us that are actually managing and looking after the elephants have a very silent voice in comparison. Um, and unfortunately, today, in today's day and age, conservation decisions are being made by activists, not by conservationists. Yeah, no, it's a good point. It's a good point. Look, man, I know that you've got a busy afternoon. I've taken up no. more of your time than... Um, I am happy. But uh, thank you, man. I really appreciate the contact. I really appreciate the, the friendship and the relationship that we're building here. And um, know that uh, what we built at Blood Origins is exactly this kind of conversation. Yes, we're, we're pro-consumptive use. We're pro-hunting. But we're also very much more pro-conservation. 
promote conservation sustainability. And we believe that hunting is a viable tool in that toolbox uh, that works in certain places, doesn't work at all in other places. Um, but it's, it's something that cannot be denied in terms of its benefits. And unfortunately, there are just a lot of people out there that are just like, we hate it. It's not good at all. It has zero benefits, and we're going to do everything in our power to remove it, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And yeah, so thanks for the work you do, because unfortunately, uh, like I said, disproportionately, they have a, a larger voice than they should. And, and I think too much is thrown into one hunting pot. Um, you know, there's the historical atrocities that took place and mixing that all in and, um, and then certain narratives that are pushed. And at the end of the day, uh, the numbers don't lie. And if you just look, and I'm sure you guys have done it across uh, Southern Africa, for example, uh, how hunting has restocked the wildlife across the board um, from 1950s to now. And people, you know, a lot of the mail I got to be, to be clear here, uh, Rob, is that um, I myself have never hunted an elephant. I never will hunt an elephant. Um, and I get a lot of mails, especially after this whole headline thing. It's like, how do you sleep at night and you kill me? Is that I don't. And like you, is, um, is I see the benefit of it. And the fact that there are people prepared to do it, I have a need, I have a, I have a product, an oversubscriber product, I've got an expense base and I've got a conservation entity that needs to function. Somebody's prepared to pay money to do this, I can put that money into the conservation and I can take the meat and feed the community. I do it. I don't personally do it and personally why don't I do anything? But that doesn't mean you can't. So just because you yourself are anti something doesn't mean you must close your mind to why are people doing it. We're not doing it because we're bloodthirsty um, getting pleasure out of killing animals, there's a benefit and there's a cost-benefit ratio here and people need to see that. Yeah, totally agree. Couldn't say it better. Ian, thank you, my man. Cool, thanks. Really appreciate you. Pleasure, thanks, man. Keep well. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.